is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. You can't say if you've had our experience that politics doesn't matter, you know, because politics killed my grandmother and it stole my parents' home uh, and it exiled my grandfather and took away his nationality and it took away all of his books and stole every piece of cutlery and uh, soft furnishings that we uh, possessed. It had a good attempt to starve everyone to death and we've all ended up as exiles. So anybody who says politics doesn't matter, you know, we are exhibit A, it definitely does matter. Russia, led by Stalin and Germany by Hitler, were gruesome, murderous, evil. Yet Russia's crimes haven't been acknowledged in any comparable way to those of the Germans and their European accomplices across the continent. But it's highlighted quite rightly in this very engaging chronicle of Lord Daniel Finkelstein's own family history in his book, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad a family memoir of miraculous survival. I'm getting a taste for handing over the interview microphone. Now a previous interviewee becomes the interviewer. In episode 113, Bea Lefkovich was interviewed by Jonathan Friedland. Rather uniquely, she knew both young men who escaped Auschwitz and warned the world of the horrors within. Details so rich in our podcast that Jonathan updated his bestseller for the paperback, The Escape Artist. Here, Bayer interviews Lord Danny Finkelstein about his book and with searching questions. A few extra nuggets appear too. Bayer also knew both Danny's parents and interviewed them too for her AJR Refugee Voices archive where she's the director. Danny says his parents held her in high regard. And like Danny, Bayer is also the child of two Holocaust survivors. And that lived-in knowledge, that shared experience, makes Danny delve into his own family story deeper than anything you might have seen or heard about his book so far. Danny is a great storyteller. He makes the detail accessible. Not surprising, though, his career has been forged out of bringing detail to life from archives, documents and the like. Do I think that liberal, law-abiding democracy, the rule of law, is something that we can be certain of? No, I'm not sure I do. I think that I've come to appreciate that people are more insouciant about it than I thought, and that it's, you know, as it's gone away before, it could again. I think in this country is relatively immune from that, but it's not completely immune like anywhere in the world. But right now, this is Bea Lefkovich, director of AJR Refugee Voices, in conversation with Lord Daniel Finkelstein, author of Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, a family memoir of miraculous survival. Oh, I'm very excited to tell their story. Uh, there was a moment when I went to the Wiener Library, which is connected to my mother's story, and I heard my father 
uh, on a pair of headphones in a refugee exhibition. And I realised it was a short audio clip, so I asked the Wiener Library to send it to me, and I put it in a drawer because I just heard it, so I didn't need to hear it again. And about six months later, I thought it'd be nice to hear Dad's voice again. So I got the uh, disc out of the drawer, and I put it in a CD player, and it wouldn't play. And it was very irritating because, you know, they'd sent it to me and it didn't play. Uh, and then I looked at it carefully and I thought, oh, it's not actually a CD. They put, they put it on a DVD. How odd. So I put it in the DVD player and up popped my father. And it wasn't two minutes uh, of audio, as I thought, but four hours of him talking about his story. An amazing experience. So first of all, I had that immense emotion of seeing my father, whom I love very dearly, uh, talking. And that was an incredible experience in itself. Uh, but after that, I realised that even though we'd spoken a lot about his experiences, my parents were very open about what they'd experienced. And even though I'd actually written about both my parents, I'm a journalist, I'd written about both my parents' stories in different ways in the newspaper for articles. And for that, I'd taken notes. Despite that, there was really a lot of detail that I hadn't got. And I think had I not put that DVD in the DVD player that day but really had you not interviewed my father I'm not sure that it would have been possible for tell for me to tell my parents story in the way that I did so I've told the story um, interlocking stories so it goes back and forward between my mother and my father's story part of it I think um, is an attempt to capture the universality of the refugee and oppressive uh, experience and the oppression that they faced. There are some things that I think are of interest to all refugees, um, however they've been made refugees, just the difficulty of their life. Not not uh, the, the life and death things, but having no money or the fact that my grandfather is in one place and his socks somewhere else. Um, you know, that, that sort of small detail of it. But obviously... The other thing it does, the, the, the commonality between the Nazi and communist uh, oppressions, I think does emerge very clearly. And despite the fact that we know so much about my mother's story, I don't mean the specifics of my mother's story, which are, which are rather special, but um, the general story of the Holocaust, we know so much less. My mother was born in 1933 in Charlottenburg, Berlin. She was the daughter of uh, one of the leaders of the Jewish community in Germany, Alfred Wiener, who was the syndicus or the general secretary of something called the CV, the Zentralverein, an organisation that represented Jews in Germany. And as part of Alfred's work, his name was Alfred Wiener, he had begun to uh, build an archive uh, of material about um, the Nazis. Ultimately, it was going to be used in the Nuremberg trials and in the Eichmann trials, um, but it was a threat to the Nazis while uh, they were active. And one of the things that happened is he had to leave Germany, go to Holland, uh, and from Holland eventually, because he was thought to endanger their neutrality, he came to Britain. Uh, when he was, um, while he was here, the Germans invaded Holland. My mother was trapped and she ended up in Belsen. Uh, but her story is, um, is one of miraculous survival. She's one of a tiny number of people who end up being exchanged because Alfred had managed to obtain for them citizenship of Paraguay. Uh, and anybody who wants to learn more about that will probably have to read the book um, because it's too detailed to explain yeah. now. But she met my father in London in 1956 and my father was um, 
uh, was born the only son of a very rich uh, parent of, of um, Adolf or Dolu Finkelstein, uh, who ran a huge company. He was known as the Iron King of Lwów. That was his nickname. When the Nazis came in from uh, into Poland from one end, the Soviets, with a sort of ruse, came in from the other end. And the deal in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, they took Lwów. They annexed it, making the creating a sort of fake election, turned it into Soviet Ukraine, uh, then began to arrest people. My grandfather being a city councillor, being a leading Jew, being very wealthy, uh, was obviously on their list. He disappears one day, is ta uh, ta uh, taken to the Gulag, sentenced to eight years of hard labour. And a few days later, they come arrest uh, my, at that point, 10-year-old father and his, um, and his mother. Uh, and they, two of them are sent to a state collective farm uh, on the border of S Siberian borders in Kazakhstan. Um, but fortunately for them, uh, but unfortunately for the rest of the family, Hitler then invaded uh, the Soviet Union. They uh, did a deal uh, between the Soviets, therefore, and the British, uh, which involved the Poles also doing a deal with the Soviets. The uh, Soviet prisoners are released. The Polish prisoners in the Soviet Union are released. And they are uh, ultimately, in quite unlikely circumstances, reunited. They join something called the Anders Army, go through, uh, go through um, the Soviet Union to Iran, from Iran to Palestine, and eventually with the Polish Resettlement Corps, they came here. My parents eventually met each other bought a house in Hendon and never left. And uh, when my mother died, uh, she did it in her bed as she would have wished to in Hendon Central. And that is uh, their story very rapidly done. But if anyone's Hitler, Stalin, mum and dad has a longer account. The interviews, I remember them very, very vividly, both of them. Your father more reluctant to speak. I think it was first we interviewed your mother, but then he... So interestingly, my parents were very open with me about the whole thing. They always would answer questions and they would sometimes talk about it unprompted. Mostly it was prompted because uh, they didn't want to bore anyone. I think there was a hilarious reason. But interestingly, my, I don't think my father told me that he'd done that interview. I, I was aware of you because he spoke <laughs> he spoke of you in glowing terms quite often. Uh, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the origin of that and I didn't know that he'd done it. Now it may be... I was so busy living my life, I didn't listen when he told me he'd done it, but I don't think he did tell me. Uh, and obviously it was a tremendous pleasure and privilege to discover he'd done it. And it wasn't, I mean, even I remember, it was, it's an unusual story, and people don't know about it, about the hardship of the good yeah. and how they survived. So that's all in your book. Do you know, it is, yeah. but it, you say it's an unusual story. It happened to hundreds of thousands of people. And actually, the way that I put it about the book, my mother's is a highly unusual version of a standard Holocaust story. Uh, but it's highly unusual story. Yes. Uh, but everyone knows that story. But they don't know the highly unusual version of my mother of my mother's, uh, you know, how it happened that she came to be free and all those things. My father's story, it happened to lots and lots of people. People just don't know it. Um, and um, I think yeah. what was good, and you said this to me, um, my father had an immense recall of detail. I used to joke about how my grandmother would introduce herself to the driver of the bus to Golders Green, but my father would then remember the name for 30 years. He had an extraordinary recollection. And I recall this in the book when we did a quiz once where the question was, what is the um, inscription? No, it wasn't. It was, what year was Admiralty Arch built? My brother knew the year off the top of his head. 
I, d- I hadn't got a clue, by the way. My father confirmed that it was true by reciting the whole of the inscription in Latin, translating it, and then telling me that my brother was correct. He wasn't to show off either. He just, that's what he was like. He could remember, he had an amazing recollection. That brings me to my next question about memory. Um, you start the beginning of your book with a quote from your grandfather, Dr. Alfred Wiener, which says, I'm prepared to forget as long as everyone else remembers. So I want to know, why did you choose to remember now? So there are some contingent reasons. I sat still long enough because of COVID um, to actually get going and produce a um, reach critical mass. For a long time, I had, and then another contingent reason, somebody approached me and asked to be my agent, and I felt embarrassed that I hadn't got anything to. <laughs> I'd, I helped with, I'd helped with David Cameron in a book, and also with a football player who wanted to do a book, and my agent had negotiated those, and then those projects had come to fruition, and now I needed, you know, now he was waiting for something else. So I felt <laughs> it was something that I sort of had to do because it was embarrassing, but of course there were bigger reasons. I felt that... Whereas 15 years ago, it would be impossible to imagine the things that happened to my parents happening to my children. I don't think I could be so confident about that now. I don't think it will. But do I think that liberal law-abiding democracy, the rule of law, um, is something that we can be certain of? No, I'm not sure I do. I think that I've come to appreciate that people are more insouciant about it than I thought and that it's, you know, as it's gone away before it could again. I think in this country is relatively immune from that, but it's not completely immune like anywhere in the world. You know, if you look at the United States, probably the most important um, force for democratization in the 20th century, it's in quite a lot of trouble. And uh, you've got to look at that and think, well, okay, I think this story does need to be told now. So that was that there was a political political impetus to it, definitely. So is there a political message then in that case? Well, yeah. So at the end of the book, I said that my parents had two different experiences and my father was not really asked to recall his, except by you, um, very often. But they processed their experiences in the same way, in that they processed it in a personal way. The personal way was they were determined not to be victims and not to see themselves as victims. Um, They realised that they were, in an objective sense, they didn't object to other people doing so, but for them, you know, they they weren't denying other people's victimhoods, but for them, they felt the liberating thing was to move on. And my, my mother was very keen that survivor not be her identity. She was a survivor and she was willing to acknowledge it and work with other survivors to a lot of Holocaust education, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the primary thing. And she certainly never wanted me to see myself a second generation survivor, right? Uh, I think she would regard that as a failure if I saw myself in quite that way. So I think that was the, and they both saw it in that, definitely saw it in that way. But they also had a political thing. So first of all, all of their children are very engaged in, in public life. My sister's a permanent secretary in the civil service. My brother's been chief scientific advisor for national security. He's the president of a university and I've been involved in politics and journalism, tried to be a public voice for the things that I believe in. And that's because you can't say if you've had our experience that politics doesn't matter, you know, because politics killed my grandmother and it stole my parents' home uh, and it exiled my grandfather and took away his nationality and it 
took away all of his books and stole every piece of cutlery and uh, soft furnishings that we uh, possessed. It had a good attempt to starve everyone to death and we've all ended up as exiles. So anybody who says politics doesn't matter, you know, we are exhibit A, it definitely does matter. Um, and, um, you know, I always remember being in school struggling with the argument, why am I interested in, more interested in politics than the other kids? And now I kind of realise why that was. And um, I would feel much more able to justify that. Um, I've very much, um, so there was that. Uh, but there's also a particular type of politics. So um, we're for the rule of law, um, for moderation and proportion. Um, we accord an important place to human rights which my grandfather, by the way, wasn't. We're supporters of, um, a, uh, of, a, of a state of Israel um, for Jews. Um, we believe in a multicultural society, but we're very attached to our national identity. All those things are definitely part from my parents' experiences. Bits that are directly from my uh, father's teaching or my mother's teaching, and other things are things I've gleaned from understanding their story. So what I find interesting, the idea about being a public figure in politics, for my parents, I'm a you know, second generation parent survivors, there was the message was very much stay out of, do not be a public person, you know, be, it's too, it's too dangerous, you know, so it's okay. interesting because you can take the opposite message, yes. politics is dangerous, do not, you know, keep a low profile, do yeah, not but speak up. The truth do of it is, my, my, both my parents, to be fair to them, were involved in, both my grandparents on both sides, the, yeah. the grandfathers were involved in politics, but you know, politics came to them. They didn't go looking for it, you know. So I, I wish it was a protection that people didn't weren't involved in politics. But you know, my mother's aunt, she wasn't involved in politics um, at all, and she died in Soviet war. You know, so it wasn't. It was. I I kind of get that idea, but I, first of all, I sort of object to the idea that it might I might be put off from being in public life. But secondly. It wasn't, so what's an interesting thing about my, um, about my mother's story is that in 1940, when, um, when Holland is invaded, they'd, they'd had this library in Holland. Most of it had moved, but Greta, my grandmother, was worried that people would know who Alfred Wiener was and they would come for him. So they, they unscrewed the nameplate and they burnt a lot of documents when, they, uh, when it first happened. But what then happens is that the Nazis don't come for him. And actually, they just get arrested like everyone else in the end. Um, and so it wasn't because Alfred was involved in politics. It wasn't because he'd gone around the country trying to warn people against Hitler. It wasn't because he had this archive. Um, it was just because he was Jewish, or that they were. Yeah, the other thing you said now and you write in the book is about your parents not being defined by being survivors. And I think that's really interesting. Again, it brings me to the second generation. You see, do you feel, you said your mother didn't like uh, the idea of second generation, but do you, first of all, would you consider yourself second generation? Do you think it's a well, useful category for well, a number of people at all? I never use that term, but the other thing, I'm sure my mum would agree with me, is I never argue about how, what people would like to call themselves or how they'd like to regard themselves. I just don't, I don't want to quibble with other people. It's not some sort of competition. If people feel that, then I'm very happy to accept them on their own terms. It's just not how I think of myself. I'm sure that my mother didn't think other people shouldn't treat them, shouldn't think of themselves as second generation. She wasn't dismissive of anybody. That's what her character was. 
and I'm not either. It's just not how I think of myself. I definitely have been, and it's obvious to me, I'm profoundly influenced by what happened to my parents. My politics makes no sense whatsoever without an understanding that. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was for that reason. It explains an awful lot. But two things. One is clearly the fact that I'm the child of two refugees uh, and they had that experience and came to this country unquestionably influences my politics and I frequently reference it. So if you want to call it second generation, you can. But that, that's the second point, which is I'm so super cool with other people using it. Uh, you know, they are, they're my, they're my, my lovely friends and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I uh, embrace them in our common experience. And I, I'd be the last person to say, don't call yourself this, or you shouldn't be that. Or, you know, it's like people have this ludicrous thing as who is a Holocaust survivor, yeah. right? And I, I haven't got any, my no mum didn't have any time for that. And I've got no time for it either, right? Um, it's culturally moved, you know, which is really interesting because post-war, Survivor was really reserved for concentration camp survivors. Yeah. And you can feel that has moved and moved and Mum had this great phrase, which she always used, which is not a competition, right? Because she actually used to always say that, you know, my father had been on a train for longer than her, right? Because she'd been on this horrible train to between Vesterborg and Belsen, which was objectively terrible. It was so hot and they were all in these many layers of clothing to keep the clothing. So it was insufferable, actually. And my father had been on a horrendous journey, which had taken three weeks. And every time my mother told the story about her own experience, which had taken some hours, she would always say um, Ludwig's was worse, right? And that is very typical of her as a personality, and I, I kind of share it. But it's more a description of her personality than it is of the experience. Mm. There's another term, I don't know whether you've come across, it's called post-memory. And there's a scholar, which is kind of interesting, in, in America, she's called Marianne Hurst, and she came up with this idea of the post-memory of the second and third generation. So, and it, what it means is that you have a relationship to that history. Well, I kind of like mm, that term. Of course, we've all got you it. Know, so we're all, it we're all positions you somewhere. Yeah, in, we're all the there. subject of our DNA and our genes and our histories. And mum, I tell you what mum didn't like about it. Yeah. Mum didn't like about it for us. Right, not not in general. She just felt um, she wanted us to live as normal life, forward facing into the country we were born in. Uh, you know, one with the modern world. She didn't want her own experiences to be visited on me. She didn't want us to wallow in the misery of her. You know, of her own oppression. That's not what she survived for. Right, that's her view. Many people felt like that, but nevertheless, now, you know, we have lots of second, third generation who feel all, all kinds of things. And some of them now with the whole citizenship, of course, right. which is a different I, I, I completely, you know? I never, I have no argument whatsoever with how anyone else wants to feel. I can only speak for myself and I don't do that in a spirit ever of criticism of other people's um, experiences because everybody had terrible experiences and we're all brothers and sisters in arms you know yeah. that's what i think i guess something some people second third generation there's a lot i think in england about not speaking on silence and that wasn't your experience wasn't my experience either no no and i think that helps a lot. there was a lot so i do understand that and i think that did help an awful lot and and um one of the reasons i've told my parents story is because i could um and I, uh, on my father's story, I had a lot of help with, so my, 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 
in a suitcase in my parents' office when they died, I found a bag full of indecipherable letters. They were Polish, I worked, right? And there were 90 of them. And I then found that there was some people in America who were, who were friends of some relations of mine who lived there, who they had lost relatives in this in the Polish deportation. And they felt very moved by it. And I was helping to tell their story by telling mine. So they were willing to help with it. Um, they were willing to help me with the translation. And that was invaluable like, because I couldn't even read them. Because the thing about the German is that you can actually, you can read it, then you can put it into, you know, you can use Google Translate to at least find out what it is. Then you can have, get a translator after that. With the Polish, you couldn't even read it. And I told this story partly because my parents did talk to me and I did know what happened. And so this is, the book is written for my parents, but, and for all the readers who don't know anything about it and had nothing to do with it, but also for everybody who had a similar experience. Oh, and for one other group of people as well, people in this country who had the trauma of um, their relatives liberating Belson, um, of which there are an amazing number who often write to me. And um, for them, I hope they'll discover what Belson was and why what happened to it, happened to people there, happened. In my own extended family is a remarkable man in his late 90s, Stanley Fisher, a British Jewish soldier among the first to witness the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. Stanley landed on Normandy's beaches in the week of D-Day and fought in the bloody Battle of Arnhem, a costly setback for the Allies. When we heard about Belson, we thought it was like a prisoner of war camp. When I saw, or what I saw, was horrific. I saw walking skeletons. Because at that time that I got there, which was the end of April, beginning of May, and uh, they were beginning to move the inmates out. And I had nightmares for years after that. Stanley's story is episode 16. So speaking of trauma, which is interesting, so I find the tone of your book, the tone is uh, not that of trauma and dislocation, but of change, you know, of a new life started. Look, it's written uh, in the yeah. spirit of my parents, not because I did it to that deliberately, but because they're my parents and I, yeah, I you know, so what's so fascinating, I mean, there are lots of things is that you find out a lot of the time how many attitudes, I have no doubt, my grandfather got himself into many political arguments and I read about them. And I have no doubt in each occasion that I would have um, taken his side in those particular disputes, even when he wasn't right, I would have made the same mistakes. Um, and then I, you know, I found my grandmother's PhD and her topic was basically a critique of over-ideological free marketeers from a free market perspective. That is such a niche political position and it happens also to be mine. I mean, my father did feel very deeply about it. My, both my parents did. My father, I think he, I might even say even more maybe. But, uh, and it was objectively, you can see that it was quite traumatic when you read, when you read about it. And in my mother's case, I definitely had the more that I, there's a, I found some newspaper cuttings of people who'd seen 
um, what must have been my mother as well as a group of small group of you know 100 other people um, coming off a train just after she was released from the camp and when you read it you realized how close to death they all were and that was pretty shocking to me because of the way that my mother always talked about it was never like that I mean she she never dramatized she under dramatized what happened to her so you in a way took on her narrative yeah no I, but I but I it's definitely influenced the way that I've seen it. But I mean, when you read her story, you realize it was every bit as terrible as you would imagine it was. Um, but it's just that she was so incredibly sort of philosophical about it and also so determined that we wouldn't be thrown by it. She, I'm sure she felt that it was the final, it would be her victory over what had happened to her was not, she was not gonna let it spoil her life and she was not gonna let it spoil my life. Right. Yeah, that was absolutely what she was going to do. She wasn't going to, you know, it happened when she was young and she'd come to this country. She'd married my dad. They were very, very, very happy together. They had a lovely life. And she was determined that that was how she was going to think yeah. of herself. But do you think sometimes a way of doing it is actually not to talk too much in detail? Is you, oh, I see because, what you mean. Because I find, I tell you from my school, my, my parents, my mother spoke a lot. But now thinking what I found, photographs, letters, and I find my knowledge was actually not the detail because the detail is quite terrible, but the, you know, if you kind of talk about in, in, in bigger things, it's, so you can create the, that sort of narrative. I'm sure that's true. I think there was probably also an element that she told me a lot of these stories when I was quite young. And then she also spoke to a lot of schools where she was definitely trying to tell them a story which they could understand, but without horrifying them too much. And there's no doubt about it. When I, you know, I was actually fun enough reading this last night when in Vesterborg, um, as you'll be aware, every Tuesday there were these transports. And so on Monday night, they would read the list out in each of the barracks as to people who were going to be deported to the east. And they sort, they both did and didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, they really did, but they also denied it to themselves. And all that. But it was horrendous, this. And I then realised this must have gone ev on every week for seven seven months right so um that is a horrendous thing and my mother didn't talk about that this is what i mean it's because i find when you really think about those details it, they are terrible and there's no way around it but yes. maybe you know so there's lots of reasons yeah. there may be lots of reasons for that why she didn't go into those details but i definitely think one of them was she just wanted she didn't want that to dominate our life i think that was very important so just tell us a little bit about your childhood in hendon yeah so we just um you know my parents lived in hendon all their life really and we so but we lived we lived a standard uh childhood in in this country we my grandmother got some recompense interestingly enough from the germans your polish jewish grandmother. even though they'd actually been victims of the communists but they got they got restitution and with that restitution, uh, my grandmother paid, and my my grandmother, my parents bought a house, and my my grandmother paid for half of our education. So we went to a private. Even though my my mum was a teacher and my dad was an academic, certainly nowadays it'd be very hard for them to afford to do that. But the restitution money helped helped to do that. It was a very bookish household. Uh, again, very much like my grandparents, but they. Uh, it was Jew Jewish, so some people I think were pushed away from religion by the experiences they'd had. 
My mother was never pushed away from it. My mother never was believed in a supernatural God before or afterwards or at any point. Um, so she, her view was um, God didn't let that happen. People made it happen. So it, it didn't reduce it her. It didn't affect her faith in it. But my father was, my father thought the same, but he was incredibly intellectually interested in Judaism in a funny way that hadn't, ha hadn't been the case all of his life. But he met my grandfather, my mother's father, Alfred Weiner. And my mother's father was incredibly interested in that his hobby really was reading about Judaism and that became my father's hobby as well. And I think your father did a degree. In yeah, my father then, then did a PhD. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, yes, his hobby yeah. was the progressive rabbit, rabbinate of 19th century yeah. Warsaw. Mine was football, you know, they were slightly <laughs> disparate, different things. So you're simulated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting thing. So that's a very interesting point, by the way. I'm sure that part of the reason that my dad had absolutely no interest in films, pop music or music or even music actually, not not of any kind, pop football or popular culture was not just because he was a refugee, but because he had no teenage years uh, at all. I'm sure part of it was just who he was, right? So, yeah. you know, there are lots of people in this country who had perfectly good teenage years, but aren't in, in those things either. But they definitely were, were part of the reason. So so I definitely got interests that of course relate to living here, which would have been incomprehensible to my grandfather yeah. Yeah. or my father. What, what were the remnants there of the continental, apart from the books? What, the oh, well, the cuisine, obviously. I just remember, I remember we had something in the hall. Yeah. Um, it was a telephone directory which you you moved the um, little thing and then it popped up like that and um, we called it the clupper right the telephone clupper and I remember once saying this to a school friend who didn't know what I was talking about and it slowly realized it was maybe it wasn't German I don't know what it what, what language it was or where it came from my parents spoke both spoke a lot of languages and they had a, you know, so there were certain continental phrases we'd use um, that other people wouldn't. And obviously we had continental food, which I didn't appreciate was continental. Like? Goulash, for example, or um, uh, I'm trying to think of other things that my mother made that were, you know, pierogi was dumplings that my grandmother made or uh, schnitzels. Um, and... Oh, my, another thing, this is pretty interesting. So my mother made something she called risotto, right? Well, what this actually was, was fried rice with um, with whatever was chicken usually. And I absolutely loved it. Right? So, to the point where when I actually one day was served a risotto, um, I, uh, I found it very disappointing, right? Actual risotto, I'm not that fond of. My mother's risotto, I really loved because I like fried rice, basically. And when I, when I was researching the book, I came across a piece of paper where, which was obviously in my grandmother's, my mother's mother's handwriting. And I was trying to translate it. And eventually I thought that word is definitely omelette. So then I sent it to a trans, somebody to translate it for me. And it turned out that my grandmother had written down in Belson lots of recipes. And one of the, I'm sure that the reason for that was not to retain some family folklore because she, it wouldn't make sense for that to be the reason. What it was, was that people were talking about food. I know this from a lot of the, my research into Belson in general, people talked about food the whole time. And what she was doing was writing down the food to remember it. Anyway, when I said to the translator, she said, one thing I'm a bit confused about 
is um, the use of this risotto that's in this list because people didn't have risotto at that time, right? Anyway, I looked at the risotto recipe and it was fried rice, right? So that is where my mother got it. And somehow they got this term that used it and she called it risotto. So there you go, that's linked with that. But there's all the children who basically believe what their parents tell them and have no idea. Same thing about the, about the accent you mentioned in the book. You didn't know that your mother Yeah, had yeah. Accent. Well, my, my sister um, had that experience where someone said to her, where does your mum come from? And, you know, as far as she was concerned, it was like, well, Cheney Walk Hendon, obviously. Um, but... Um, it was only as we got older that we sort of began to realise they didn't come from there, in quotation marks. You didn't feel that? Did you feel mm. any loss or absence or I those spoke, kinds of... No, no, I didn't. My parents worked very hard. They didn't want us to feel like the last remnants of a dying continental culture. I think my grandfather, my mother's father, definitely did feel that. But he was much older, obviously. But my father and my mum were determined not to feel that but definitely in their whole interests and outlook that definitely was part of it what about their friends for example? yeah so all their friends almost all their friends were in fact refugees yeah. i didn't you know lots of them would change names and stuff i didn't know i just discovered it afterwards they they had very few of i suppose conventional friends that you would meet sort of ordinarily do you remember they one where they had um a friend who was a Scottish Labour MP who'd become a Lord. My parents thought that was great that he was a Lord. And he came around to dinner. I remember Lord Howie of Troon. And I met him. I was then in the House of Lords with him, which was quite yeah. nice. He was very old. He's, no, he's, no, he's no, no longer alive now. But And I remember that mainly because it was so odd that they had a friend who um, came around who was like not, who was British and uh, by birth and not Jewish. And... Um, it was one of those dinner parties that I met my in-laws. Okay. And I married their daughter. Okay. Yeah. So because I think again, other people find themselves in a situation where they don't quite realise that all the friends or that they themselves are second, third generation. Yeah, they my, didn't actually know that it's my school. father. To, to be my father was very open and, and professionally, he had lots of. He had, a, you know, he he worked in the mining research establishment. He went down the mines. Uh, he was a university academic. He had lots of friends. Who he personally professional friends who were born in Britain and who you know that was their background, but went for socialising. You're in an unusual situation, and so far that your grandfather really founded an institute, yes. you know, to chronicle history, to fight against anti-Semitism. Where do you see your legacy? On let's talk about Holocaust education in general. You know, how do you feel well, you should continue that? Oh yeah, okay. So that's interesting. So when my mother became so this is another uh, impetus for the book where my mother became my mother had begun to do began to do schools um a particularly moving thing where she went george osborne invited her to number 10 downing street to talk to his kids because she wanted them to meet uh them to meet a holocaust survivor and it was you know it made an impression on them and george lo absolutely loved it and my mother obviously loved going to number 10 to do that but even i'm 60 and so obviously um we're going to have to uh, make sure that we pass that on. So I, my, my son was very involved in, in the book. My, my oldest son was very involved in the production of this uh, book. And actually my middle son also helped me with some of the scanning for, of the documents. I've tried to involve them all in it a Do bit. Do you feel that they'll take this on? Yeah, so I'm sure they will. My son, my son, particularly my oldest son, is really very interested in it. He's interested in Judaism and he's interested in the history. And they definitely all feel it's something that they have to... They have to do. And 
what do you think? So we have collected all these testimonies, like your parents, in, in the world probably, I'm sure that Shaw Foundation 52,000, other, you know, other archives, maybe we have, I don't know, nobody's counted all the testimonies. What do you think should happen? They are, you know, they're sitting in archives and libraries worldwide. Well, some of them will sit there and people won't review them, but they'll also be there when people need to have them. I mean, I'm sure that uh, when I reviewed the minutes of the meeting between Jim Callaghan and my father, Jim Callaghan, the former British Prime Minister, and my grandfather, um, I was probably the first person to look at that document uh, in years, you know, but so it's in an, in an archive and people don't necessarily use it, but then sometimes they do. And then, you know, my career really has been about popularising information which I read so you don't have to, the, you know, you the reader don't have to. Yeah. Um, and this is what hopefully what I've tried to do with this. So I've tried to collect, I, I hope that people who read what I've written will then get a much sort of more coherent idea of what happened in the Second World War and how the Holocaust happened. Okay, so the, th the thing that is very important to understand is, I have to put this in a tactful way, people aren't are not immensely well informed about lots of things, right? Um, and we should, one should be, contain one's expectation about how knowledgeable people are about lots of things. I, I, and that's not to patronise people. I remember, I remember hearing uh, on the radio a plumber and he come on the radio he did a quiz and the question he was asked was um do you who was the dictator of italy when hitler was the dictator of germany and he has got as far as saying it was musa something or other that's what he said yeah. and he didn't know who mussolini was and so then he was told it was mussolini and his response was well you probably don't know where the stopcock is and he's probably right Okay, so I certainly couldn't give you a coherent description of how my central heating works. Everyone has their own knowledge, right? You can't expect everybody to have an incredible knowledge of the Holocaust, however much you teach it. It's just too much to expect. Um, but what we should try to do is make sure that well-informed people um, integrate that into their thinking. Um, and that the information is available to anyone who wants to learn and that some very basic ideas Hitler was bad and killed a lot of Jews I know that sound that sounds but that is important I, I don't and if I if I can get that across to people uh, and in, by the way one of the things in my book Stalin was also very bad and also killed a lot of people and it, and it's just important people get a grip of that and I don't expect most people to end up knowing what Katyn was. But do you think it will help, you know, with contemporary anti-Semitism? Because obviously that's now a topic which yeah. maybe wasn't a topic. Of course, years ago, it was. You know? Yes, I think I think it still. I think it does help, and it does. Um, we we've got a a growth of anti-Semitism, but we've also got a growth in the world of kind of understanding about racism. Those things are intention. Sadly, I don't think we will ever eliminate prejudice or oppression or people killing each other because um, one person has a, an, a rabbit god and the other person has got an elephant god, right? People just do do that. And I, I don't think we'll ever eliminate that, but we can contribute to it. And all you can do is contribute a little bit to it. And so I, I don't give... I understand her sort of feeling of despair, but I, 
I think you'd give up altogether if you expect if you expect too much. And I just want to get across the idea is it's very dangerous if we go down the route of dictatorships because all these people got killed, right? And that would then, I, it's better if I can have people better informed on that. We should try, yeah. uh, but if we can get that across to start off with, it would be good. Okay, well, hopefully you'll achieve that. But it's, what also is interesting, it seems there's more interest. There is maybe more incentive, but there's also more interest in other causes. I don't know whether you find that. Yeah, you know, completely. There's so many books. My mother said to me, um, so there were two, there was a number of things. First of all, one of the things that I wondered about with my yeah. book was would the publishers all say, um, thank you very much for the idea, but do you have any other ideas because people have written all about uh, this? And indeed, one of my friends that actually years ago, his agent said to him, don't write, don't, he's a broadcaster, don't write about that. And people, everyone's writing about that. But that was totally not my experience. Um, the publishers were absolutely falling over themselves to publish it. Um, uh, you know, quite seriously, it was very interesting. So, and they know what they're doing. So obviously they think people have got an interest in this and they will want to buy it. Um, and that's very encouraging. People do have an interest in it. So obviously, uh, by the way, we can achieve much more than rudimentary knowledge for educating people who read books. And that's obviously ought to be an objective because teaching, you know, intelligent, literate people some of the details of how and what happened is very important. You know, my view is anyone who wants to understand what's happening in Israel, for example, and who wants a view on the Middle East, probably first ought to understand what happened to, you know, the, the arguments my grandfather engaged in in the 1920s, where he thought he wouldn't, you know, he wrote best-selling books saying um, he didn't think that creating a state in Israel would be necessary, and events rather changed his mind. Um, so obviously, you know, that kind of literacy is pretty important yeah. for politically engaged, literate people. Um, but I think we're doing not badly with those people. I think that's, yeah. you know, where I worry about more is a kind of general, yeah. general um, lack of sort of in, lack of understanding of the importance of the rule of law, really. Yeah. No, no, it's part. The rule of law, I yeah. would say, is about um, the maintenance of a system that guarantees people's individual liberty as well as a democratic state. You know, for example, not only the publication of the books, but also Holocaust World Day. To me, it seems getting bigger and bigger. I'm just talking about UK, also worldwide. But it seems yeah. there are more institutions. More. I used to joke to my mother that it was her busy um, season. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's no yeah, question so about it. It just is interesting. Have you got any tips for any other thir second, third generation who want to write about their families now based on your own research and yeah, your engagement? So obviously, if you still can, please make sure that you try and uh, record your parents um, in some form, preferably video. It's the best form. But if you can do it, if you can't, then do it writing it down. But okay, that's too, maybe too late for some people. The second thing I would say, which is very important, is that what happened to your parents happened to, to other people and they have written about it. So if you know uh, that your parents lived in a particular town, well, there are lots of other people lived in that town and you can find out all about that town and what happened to them will have happened to other people. So for example, um, in one of the characters in my book, um, he was shot in, in the Katyn massacre, which is explained in the book. Um, but when people read it, they think to yourself, well, because he got shot, you think, how does anyone know 
how, how do you know that's what happened to him? Because he was shot. And the answer is because it happened to, it happened to that, you know, to several thousand people and it all happened in the same way because someone wrote about that. Someone who did it wrote about it. So therefore there's a record of it. So exactly what happened to each person, not individually, but as a group is described. If you, um, you know, I discovered, um, what, uh, texture the, uh, carriages um that took my mother from belson to switzerland um that it was soft furnishing because um somebody put it in their book my mother didn't say it but somebody else who was on the same train said it so if you the i suppose my biggest thing is you've not lost the information if you haven't done the interview what you need to do is think of the things that you know and remember that if you're parents lived in a certain town or they went to a certain concentration camp or then what happened to uh, other people when them were the same and you can find a surprising amount of their story out of that uh, it's all in archives in other people's books you can piece it all together and also it creates a sense interesting enough sense of community i mean you have people that say the descendants of kitchener camp you know where the yeah i'm thinking but people were in the same it's an extraordinary, you know, and there is a sort of legacy going on. Yeah, we've got a friend, and they she had a a great aunt, I think, that had been had been in concentration camp, and that was a person that they thought of in their community. And we worked out that at different points she must have been in the same barrack as my mum, and so therefore, you know, this was somebody that I knew here. Um, actually, Philippe Sands. Yeah. I went to school. Uh, who wrote East West Street? I went to school with Philippe. Uh, we weren't in the same class. We were in different years. Um, and Philippe, um, and we were cordial, but we were not particularly friends. We are now. We were not at the time. Um, and in his book, East West Street, he talks about the Landis family of Leveuf. Well, so do I in my book. It turns out we actually have the same, some, some common family. We think we're third cousins. We've kind of uh, embraced that. We're not 100% certain, but we've decided we are certain enough. And so we refer to each other as cousin and regard ourselves as relatives. Okay, okay, learn yeah. something new, interesting. Um, okay, almost lastly, do you feel the war in Ukraine and these current discussions about British immigration policy kind of resonate, especially? Yes. You? So I don't. Let's take them. They're separate things. Yeah. They're... So the war in Ukraine, obviously, you know, bombs are literally falling on Lviv you know in the place where i visited to see my father's house um with philippe uh and um one of the reasons that is ha can happen is because of an, a concerted attempt by the russians the russians didn't lose the war unlike the nazis they were not forced to uh confront what happened to them they they all the things that the nuremberg defendants were found guilty of the russians the soviets did the, all of them Right, the Soviets were guilty of all of the crimes. They even tried to convict the Nuremberg defendants of the Katyn massacre, which they themselves had committed. Because the because the Soviets uh, never had to have a reckoning, uh, because they won rather than lost the war, um, they can continue to distort and their history of the area and continue to behave in an oppressive way to that area. Continue to pretend the things that did not happen, uh, that happened, did not happen. Um, and I think um, there's an obvious resonance of my book with what's happening in there in a direct way. It's, it's at the same places, and anybody who wants to understand 
how certain parts of Ukraine became part of Ukraine can read the book and um, and find that out. Um, the British, the immigration. British immigration policy is a more subtle thing. So my um, grandfather uh, spent a lot of the war in New York, um, but one of the the British decide at the end of the war they're not going to continue to fund his library. Right, an incredibly short-sighted and stupid decision, but like, but understandable when you take it in the context of all the other things they had going on. Right now, it seems like how could you? not think that was a valuable resource. They hadn't even had the Nuremberg trials yet and they were already saying, we're not going to finance your archive of Nazi material, even though it then proved incredibly valuable and there'd been no historical research on it. So it's like, it seems bonkers. But then you think to yourself, well, actually, lot you know, there were millions of displaced people in the world. The whole world had been sort of burnt to the ground. Um, uh, so naturally, you know, so you reach a bit more of an understanding of what happened. But my grandfather had gone to America. He came back to this country, and because they weren't going to give him any money, they they said you can be, you can have your period in the United States recognised as a period in Britain, and you're therefore eligible for citizenship. And that's how he became a citizen of this country. But at that point, they were not. There was a relatively limited number of people coming and it was also part of a massive worldwide uh, refugee problem which had been caused by you know, literal genocide in particular places. So um, both scale and immediacy were a bit different. Yeah. There's no question that their experience leads you to look at every person who wants to come through the lens of are we denying somebody in immediate human need um, who wants to come here? Um, but it also, but, but I look at every person thinking, I don't, however, have a duty to be in favour of all and every person who wants to immigrate to this country because we cannot, because the scale is just simply different. <laughs> And the immediacy is different in lots of cases, not in all, but in lots of cases. And where the immediacy is not different, i.e. Ukraine, this country has actually uh, responded. So I, I, I would say that my position on this is like a lot of things is, is sort of moderate. I don't, I, I think that people who have our experience and are therefore very open to the idea that we need to, this country needs to have safe and legal asylum and it needs to protect asylum, and we've got a certain responsibility because of our background, I guess, to observe how important that was in the past. But I don't feel it, but I sometimes feel that people have got no responses to, well, what do we do about the fact that there are many too many people who'd want to avail themselves of that, which there were not before, which we can't actually cope with. And at what point is that? Um, it's, it's quite tricky, right? Because you're then trading off people's immediate needs or even their legitimate desires with yeah. this country's own stability right and i i've i've never felt it was reasonable to just ignore yeah. this country's own stability because one of the things that this country was kind enough for me to take in my parents and i don't want to say by that because you took in my parents i'm going to insist you take in everybody right um that sort of an odd position also. So it's just a very difficult issue. One of the things that we have got to accept in the world is there are there are too many refugees for every country that wants to take refugees to take them. But here's another point. People don't want to be refugees. So the thing that's informed me most is I am a, 
I very strongly believe in international aid. I very strongly want to support the international refugee effort. I very strongly support military uh, military intervention where necessary to protect democracies against um, illiberal forces and to prevent people becoming refugees in the first place or to protect people who are refugees. That, in my view, is the first line. My grandfather didn't want to live in this country. He wanted to live in Germany. He was German. When he died, he has his funeral in German. He, he said my funeral should be in German and Hebrew. On his coffin, a, a wreath from the Federal Republic. And the ambassador was there. And the president issued a statement about my grandfather. He, he, was, he regarded, even though he was a naturalised Briton, he still had a strong association with Germany. He didn't want to be here, live here, be driven out. And what he wanted to do was to resist the Nazis in Germany. That's what he was trying to do. And so um, I guess um, my attitude to it is um, one step before... There's very little I wouldn't do to prevent people from becoming refugees. Um, and uh, that's how I deal. That's how I. That's how I relate my experience to the refu to the to refugees. Well, I, I would definitely call myself a British Jew. I, I obviously I always say that I'm a son of Holocaust survivor and son of a refugee from the Soviet Union. Um, but I regard myself primarily as a kind of you know British journalist uh, living in Pinner with my family. You know, and that's how my parents would want me to think of myself. Yeah. And do you have any message for anyone who might watch this interview in the future? There are a few things like everyone should try and be kind to each other. Um, uh, my mother always used to say we all have our own mishugas, which for those people who don't know what that means, we all have our own craziness. We all have our own eccentricities. We should tolerate those in other people. Um, uh, we should try to defend vulnerable that are vulnerable um, uh, because not everybody will be kind, even though we think... Uh, people uh, should be kind and um, defend the rule of law uh, and um, also get things in proportion. That's my mother's most important uh, message. So she um, would never have a row with something, somebody about a single council. She'd never resign from single council or have a row with the neighbour about a tree. It was never important enough to her. So for some people, I suppose they saw Hitler and Stalin in everything. Whereas my mother's approach was to see them in nothing, right? She's nothing was like that. Uh, and um, therefore we can get all of it in proportion. Um, since proportion is required in most things, uh, I think um, if people could manage it a bit more, it would be it'd be a good thing. It's subjective, of course, yeah. but it's still a good guide. And that's what I remember. That's what she said. And she lived like that. She said she's not going to. She did. She wasn't bothered by. She she um, was never. She would never. She was never ever petty. So we once years later, she was the victim of some effectively theft from her and this kind of manifested itself because one of the people working said to my sister that she'd not left enough food for the people who were working for her and my mother my sister was no that definitely didn't happen that's how we discovered that there was some theft going on because that was impossible my mother was my mother was never ever petty about things and that was her takeaway from it my father as well you know which is um be big-hearted, try and be big about things, try and be generous. Nothing's like Hitler and Stalin. 
It's not a competition. Allow people to live their lives, see things in proportion, be moderate in everything, try and be kind to each other, uh, try and keep the law, you know, which um, my father was always very uh, keen on because he thought once we'd decided that we didn't have to keep them, why should anyone else? Um, and uh, my parents, I, you, I can try. I wish, I only wish sometimes that I was, you know, as capable of being equable as my mum was. The best guests and their most heartfelt views. A relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli world that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this, donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. That's donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening. And so very often themes develop and tie episodes together in Johnny Gould's Jewish State because I ran a competition at my children's school to win the chance of making an episode of my podcast. 11-year-old Bella Bolo was the winner and like Danny, she's developed an early interest in news and politics. And so Bella will join me to interview Bill Browder, CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, at one time the largest foreign portfolio investor in Russia. His lawyer, Sergei Matnitsky, was tortured and killed as he became a target for Putin's brutal regime. It's another future episode not to miss. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.